Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monorail Radio, episode number 74. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are joined by a very special guest tonight, Lisa Denoto from the Castle Run. Lisa, how are you today? Hey guys, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. I'm great. We're so excited to have you here because we've been talking about doing Lion King for a while now um, because it's it's sort of a very polarizing movie, not, not different from uh, Aladdin, which we just did last week. And if you guys haven't uh, gone back to listen to that, feel free to go and check that one out. Um, but when Lion King came out, I remember, because I've been following your blog for a while, because we're both on the WDW radio running team, so I've been subscribed for a while, and I remember when you saw Lion King, you wrote just this unbelievable review and blog post, and I remember reading that back in July, and I was like, well, she doesn't know this yet, but we're going to have her on when we review this <laughs> movie. <laughs> If you'd like, why don't you go ahead and tell uh, some of our listeners about Castle Run and what you guys are doing over there? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for that. That's awesome. You just you never know who's reading or what they're thinking um, when you put stuff out there. So that's awesome to hear. Um, but yeah, so my blog with Castle Run, I've been maintaining for about three years now. Um, and it sort of chronicles our journey as a family and my journey in walking away from what happened to be a life that made me miserable, um, which was, you know, in big law, um, I was in corporate law on Wall Street and then outside D.C. And kind of recreating this life that calls to us and that feels more like a, a life that fulfills us instead of a life that looks good on paper, um, if you will. So, um, you know, through the Castle Run, needless to say, we're very, very local to Disney. I live immediately north of Magic Kingdom. And so, you know, my version of, of this life that we want to be living is very much a Disney life. And so... You know, of course, we cover a lot of Disney content and we have a lot of, you know, Disney fans that follow um, that follow my content. But then I also kind of hope that somewhere along the way, somebody who might not be a big Disney fan will consume my content and find in it permission to live their best life. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah. So that's the blog. Um, you know, of course, I've got an Instagram as well. The Castle Runner that, that, that I keep very active and I've got the candle shop now. That's that's also you can get to through the castlerun.com. Um, so lots of stuff going on, all good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks for giving me a chance. The oh, candles are so pretty. Thank you. I love Thank all the lights too. <laughs> they're fun. They're, they're a nice, chill aesthetic and, and get some good Disney scents. So check them out. So we're going to go ahead and give you guys the really brief Cliff Notes version of The Lion King because what amazes me about The Lion King is I can sum this story up in – four, maybe five sentences, if I'm really being brief about it, but you're not really missing out on anything. But the amazing thing about this story is, as brief as it is when I break it down and I can just lay it out there, at least in the original, without spoiling our review of this one here, at least the original animated version, they accomplished such an amazing film and such a beautiful film and a beautiful story that you could get that much out of something that's really sort of basic in, in concept, and it's very similar to Hamlet. I mean, I'm still blown away, and we reviewed the original back on episode number 47, and I, this has just been one of those movies that uh, it has stuck with me forever, and I'm sure that you feel the same way. Oh, absolutely. This was in heavy rotation when I was a kid, and to your point, it's a timeless story. It's just that Disney told it best, and I think that's why it has so much staying power. 
but did Favreau? Well, that's going to be my... And that's what we're going to talk and about. And that's my question. So I'll ask Lisa first. When you found out that they were going to do a live-action interpretation of The Lion King, were you excited? Were you hesitant? Cautiously optimistic? Because some of these movies have been hit or miss. So, you know, I adore Favreau. And I am always, you know, very hesitant to think that he could ever do wrong. Uh, you know, you're always hesitant when you hear that these classics are being remade. There's always sort of the, um, the hesitantly cynical, you know, you know is it going to be a cash grab? Are they doing this because it's the right thing to do or because it's the next popular movie on the list? And for me, I think that the best live actions, the ones that have been really wonderful, are the ones from way back in the day when they're really dealing with a very simple storyline and very sort of flat characters that benefit so much from the, the development of doing this in modern day, you know, with the benefit of, you know, live action. Of course, this wasn't actually live action, but it's neither here nor there. So for me, my absolute favorite, it doesn't get much love for whatever reason, my absolute favorite of the live actions and really one of my favorite movies that Disney has done, period, was the live action Cinderella. I thought that was one of the most stunning, beautiful movies. I love the depth that they added to the characters. I mean, even the prince became a very, I mean, the, the prince had was nothing in the original. He was just sort of the prince. And so they had so much to sort of work with and develop and create this beautiful, visually stunning story. And so as they're sort of tiptoeing into these stories that have very, very well-developed plots, very, very well-developed storylines, and that are sort of closer to our age, so they really don't have a lovely way anyway because they're so beloved, I get more and more nervous about why it is that they're remaking them. So, and I, I said the same thing, my favorite, and we just talked about it last week, my favorite of the live action so far, similarly, is Cinderella, because for all the reasons you just said, and even in that, like, I remember going back and thinking for the first 20 minutes of the movie, this is really, really sort of being overacted, and this is really cliched, and it's a little silly, but as I pointed out then, when her mother passes away, the tone, the colors, everything changes. And it's the splash of cold water that brings you right into the movie that we're more familiar with. Well, I agree with you there. So I'm interested to see if my list is going to shift after we talk about this. What was your opinion when you heard they were doing The Lion King with Favreau? I mean, I really loved Favreau's Jungle Book. I thought it was great. I mean, there, there were a few choices that I didn't agree with. But overall, I really liked it. And I'm just a big... JFAB fan in general. I mean, we've talked about it on the show a million times. If you've not seen Chef, it's not a Disney movie, but go out and see it because it's amazing. It's got such a, a great cast, but an indie film feel. I love him as Happy Hogan. Like, he can do no wrong by me. What I really love about what he does when he directs is that he does so much homework. And what he did here was similar to what they did when they released the animated Lion King in that they showed not even a trailer for it. They showed the circle of life sequence as I believe it was part of the Aladdin VHS release. So you got to see the first sequence of it play out because everybody knew they were doing the Lion King and it was going to be very realistic with the animals. So they gave us a little taste of it. And he chose to do that again 
by getting as much of the circle of life done as he possibly could. And he was actually brazen enough to release it at D23. When you're putting it, you know, to Lisa's point, right in the fan's face of the people who are going to be like the most critical of it. And he just let it go. Yeah, and, and that initial... Pun not intended, sorry. And that initial reaction was very positive at D23 when he showed that footage. So in short, you know, the, the premise of The Lion King is you have Mufasa. He is the king of Pride Rock. His son Simba is born next in line, much to the dismay of his brother Scar, who secretly wants to be king. And not Scar, so secretly. Well, not well secretly to them, but not so secretly to us. We find that, and again, this is the animated version that he has befriended the hyenas, who are really the enemies to the lions. In an attempt to become the king, he stages this event where Simba's in a gorge. He and the hyenas set up a stampede, which. Mufasa has to save Simba from, and as Mufasa's climbing out of the gorge, Scar kills him, throws him right back into the gorge. He's killed by, uh, killed by the stampede, and he tells Simba, run away and never return, where he meets Timon and Pumbaa. He befriends them. He learns the way of Akuna Matata and grows up on his own. Meanwhile, Scar and the hyenas have taken over Pride Rock, and it, they've basically ruined it. There's nothing left there. They're out of food, and they're being forced to leave. Uh, his This is Simba's childhood friend, Nala, who he was betrothed to. That was the original plan. She's now grown up to, she has left to go find help, find Simba, who she believes is dead as well, because Scar said that they were both gone, brings him back to Pride Rock, where he confronts Scar. They have an altercation. He eventually does defeat him to take his place, as they will tell you a million times, in his place in the great circle of life. He and Nala do end up having their own cub who is next in line to take over the throne. Unrelated to the film itself, but let me just say, I loved from the moment the movie started where you got the original Disneyland opening because it was Disneyland's anniversary when you had the castle open. Yes. Side note, I loved it. No, and they put actually like Fantasyland behind the castle, which you've never seen before. I mean, usually they just shoot off the fireworks and the music starts and you're off into the film. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. And I remember your big fear when we went into the screening of the film because we saw it on opening night was, I hope he gets it right from the start. And screen opens up and you see the jungle. I guess you see, I don't know if it's the Serengeti or whatever scene it is, and when the sun starts to come up and they launch into Circle of Life, you audibly breathed out loud and went, oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah, because Favreau pretty much would have been dead to me if he missed this. We've talked a lot Gosh. about on the show about how in the live action Beauty and the Beast, they missed like the chandelier shot, your money shot. And this would have been just as bad, if not worse if they didn't attack that sunset on the first note. But he makes you sweat because the lyrics don't start right away with the sunset. He just kind of leaves you hanging. What did you think of the opening, Lisa? So, I mean, I think, I don't know if we've all seen that meme or that like, it's, it's sort of like that little visual joke online where the teacher says something about like that you can't hear visuals and then the student goes, no, you're wrong and pops up the opening image of the Lion King. Yes. Yes. So, I mean, to say that it's an iconic image 
for all of us is a huge understatement. I mean, no one sees that sunrise or sunset or whatever, you know, and, and doesn't hear those notes. You know, I think for me, um, I was at D23 and, and when we saw it, it was a, extremely emotional. For me, I didn't realize how sort of emotionally I moved. I was on a larger scale by that scene until I saw the recreation of it. And to me, it was sort of in showing that to all of us and in opening opening with it the way that he did, I think Fabro was kind of admitting that he was aware of what he was taking on. I didn't realize you were at that D23. That's so awesome that you got to be in the room. Yeah, that was, it was... It was very cool. But yeah, I mean, for me, like just in seeing that and getting choked up and like and seeing love or hate this recreation, like nobody doesn't think it's not visually stunning. That's I don't true. know if the negatives were in there. I might have gotten one off. But it, nobody doesn't think this movie is visually stunning and that it's it's a it's a masterpiece. And, you know, you get that at the grandest scale in the recreation of the introduction. Yeah. And I mean, it's literally... A lot of this movie is shot for shot at times, line for line. But, I mean, whereas some other scenes deviate, either with their camera angles or with the dialogue, this is completely shot for shot to the point where they even rack focus with the ants. Yeah, I know that you are... <laughs> I, I know you're going to have something to say about this, but I, I thought it was, it was, similarly as you just said, visually stunning, and I felt the same thing like he knows what he's tackling here because the the original animated lion king basically is a perfect film so this is one of those where you kind of have to have some gusto to touch it anyway but to know where to be creative and where to respect the original process i'm certainly not going to argue with it being visually stunning especially because that first shot of the sun rise that's the only live action shot in this whole film he actually did use the real thing but i'm not going to let the rack focus thing slide because i appreciate that he kept it shot for shot but it's far less impressive that you did it in a computer as opposed to having to draw something where you're blurring out the background and then switching it to blur out the foreground that that's the disney animator magic but the fact that it looks so accurate, I mean, when I, when I watch this scene, I, I feel like I'm watching something on Animal Planet on this, you know, Discovery Channel. But that's my point, is that you emulated that and you drew it. Oh, uh, yeah, well, yeah, absolutely. The, the original animated version from 1994 is absolutely outstanding, but I like the fact that he carried it over here is what I'm saying. What I also like that they carried through is that they let the song play out and then they put up the title card of The Lion King, which we actually just learned that was kind of an accident, that Hans Zimmer had to deliver the song, Circle of Life, and he was up against his deadline and he hadn't really finished it yet. So that drum hit at the end. I don't think they really ever started talking about it until Favreau released this Lion King. It was an accident. He just needed the punctuation mark on the end of the song, and he had to put it out there for some studio executive, and uh, they rolled with it. Not only did they roll with it, but they started whispering to each other, and he was convinced he was getting fired, and they turned around and said, we're just trying to figure out how to reanimate the end because that's how we want to end the opening sequence. Yeah, when, when he hits that drum, the hair on my neck stood... And I remember getting choked up. And I'm not afraid, and I, have, I don't have too much pride, I will admit that, even I got choked up at the opening of this film. And the amazing 
part about the drum beat here is it's John Favreau. Favreau is yeah. the one that hits the drum beat, which I thought was really just a kind of fun tidbit. And they have a video of him hitting that drum, and he's got like this wide-eyed, like I can't believe it's me. Forget all the other things that he's made. <laughs> Forget the fact that like half the MCU belongs to him, and now he's got Star Wars and the Mandalorian. It's hitting the drum to end the circle of life, which like got to him because you don't see him break. You really don't ever see Favreau break. No, but I think he's made an entire career off of saying, look what I get to do. And not in an egotistical way. It's just because he's an overgrown child. He's just such a movie fan. Like, it's so clear that he loves this. Interesting, too, about how they made this movie. Because I think the animation, I think the animation's incredible. D do you concur on this? There, there's one part where I don't love it. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to we'll that. We'll circle around to that. But yes. Lisa, visually stunning, right? We can agree on this. I mean, it's it's a technological feat. Yes, it is visually stunning. Does it translate to The Lion King? We can talk about that more. Is it visually stunning? I don't think anyone could say no. And you just phrased it perfectly. It's, it's a technological feat. Because the way that they actually did this, which, like... I only, still have a headache thinking about it. Yeah. Only Disney and only Favreau could think to do this. They wanted it to look like they were filming it documentary style. So what they did was they created basically the entire set was done in virtual reality. And they had the headsets on and they had controllers and they had sensors that they had on tripods, on dollies. And they tried to actually for a lack of a better term, shoot this film. The fact that they would think, because Favreau said, we kind of grown up in the video game generation, and if it looks too much like a video game, if it's too clean, if it's too stiff, people are going to call you on it. The fact that they sort of, I mean, they kind of created this technology, I up to, you know, in, in my opinion, or as far as I know, this is sort of unheard of in terms of how you're going to actually shoot a film. Right, because if they just did the sets and the animals as a CGI build, it would look like a video game. It's just going to fall too flat. So they use the VR to get those camera movements and kind of weave in and out. And you probably see that most in Can't Wait to Be King. I think that's probably like the best example of it because you're really getting like in and out of the elephants and you're walking through the herds and all that kind of thing. But what's really impressive too is that we had the Broadway play as an example prior to this coming out, which obviously they didn't with the animation. So I thought that they were going to draw more from that. And what they did to help the actors out this time, because it's not an animation, rather than just put them in a sound booth, they built like a black box theater and actually had them in a space where they could perform this as if it were a stage play to help them kind of understand like the distance to each other and more of their spatial relationship. And that's also what gave it more of like a rounded feel. Yeah, I'd say that that was a success because I think for the most part, again, you know, we haven't even really started digging into this film. I do think that the chemistry with most of the cast, at least, it's palpable. It, you know, it's very authentic, and knowing that this is how they went about it lends itself well to really creating that sort of world versus just being in a sound booth where you're looking at uh, screen grabs and uh, storyboards and things of that nature. All right, let's actually start talking about um, some of the things that we're seeing here. 
starting. Yeah, let's stop nerding out on Lisa. Um, <laughs> so the opening scene is Scar after he's missed the presentation of Zimba. And that was one of the things that I remember most about your blog post was how you say that this really does become Scar's movie and how different he is than the animated feature. Yeah, so I think I think in the blog post and in my own mind, very much so still, I liken it to my first viewing of Infinity War. So when I first walked into Infinity War and I thought it was about all of the MCU characters coming together on force on screen, I was disappointed. And then I went home and I realized it was a movie about Thanos and I liked it a lot more. And I think I felt the same way about The Lion King. I think for reasons that I'm sure we will discuss ad nauseum this evening, it falls flat in some ways. But once I kind of realized that if I watched it as Scar's movie, I appreciated it much, much more. Because all of the things about them being quote-unquote real lions that were wrong with the movie made Scar right. Because in having to create a CGI lion that was marred in the way that Scar was marred. I mean, his back was bowed. He had the, the scar looked painful across his eye. His ear was partly missing and he just looked very, very ill. And in watching him have to, you know, for example, listen to a very precocious young Simba say that one day he was going to be taking orders from him. He became a much more sympathetic character and a much more interesting character. And I think there were some hints at backstory to Scar that we didn't have in the original film. I think um, that he said he, you know, he wouldn't try to take the throne again. That again, I don't think was in the first film. And then I think when he throws Mufasa to his death, he actually swipes at his eye. That seems to me like it's a, um, you know, like he's getting him back. So I think a lot of the questions that we had about Scar's backstory in the original movie aren't openly answered in this movie, but I think they're much more, you know, a hint of that or, you know, alluded to and and yeah and and just having to see a real lion that was sick and 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 scarred in the way that scar is just it, it couldn't not make him a more sympathetic character i know a lot of people took issue with the fact that he wasn't perhaps darker in color in the main i sort of understand that there were memes going around and i'm sure you saw them i know you saw them uh, where somebody had like reanimated them to make them look like they were basically just CGI characters of the original animated film. Mm. And I, I don't know about you guys, I did not agree with that when I saw it. Because when I saw it, I said, well, this is supposed to be quote-unquote live action. They are supposed to look real. If you just do this, it's just the straight CGI remake of The Lion King. I think it would have actually taken away from the film. I'm interested to know what you each have to say about that. Yeah, I think one of the things that was most interesting to me about this movie is that looking back at when they talked about starting to make the original Lion King, the inspiration for it was a documentary about lions and hyenas. Right. Like an actual documentary. And so that was sort of what piqued my interest the most when I heard that they were taking this on was that it seemed like in a way they might actually be going back to the roots of what inspired the original. And, and so, yeah, I mean... It, I fully respect the fact that Favreau and, and his team were taking this on as, you know, trying to create an almost National Geographic version of The Lion King. You know, again, it, it didn't work across the board and there, there were issues with it and how it translated to film. But I definitely 
you know, respect the fact that the intent was to create a sort of National Geographic style version of the story. And I think it's very cool that that's a nod to sort of what inspired it to begin with. I can appreciate that they went for the realism here because I think that would have been a huge criticism if they didn't make Scar look like Mufasa and make them look like they're from the same family or from the same from the same pride. Scar is one of my favorite villains, so while it was upsetting to see that he doesn't look the way that you're familiar with, you know, they adjusted to it to bring it into that live action. And again, you know, most of it has to do with making them look like they're related, but we had mentioned it when we t- discussed the animated features that the difference between Scar and Mufasa is not just the coloring, but Mufasa does look a lot more bulked up and they do draw Scar a bit more angular, a bit skinnier. But here, it's like you said, he's emaciated and you see that he looks a lot more sickly. So it does make you a lot more sympathetic towards him. Absolutely. If there's one thing about this character that I miss in this film versus the way that he was in the original... I truly do miss how, in the original film, how eccentric he was. The flamboyance. The, the flamboyance is missing. Because, it, it, you know, it comes off a little bit more arrogant there. And I guess it's the way that Jeremy Irons played him where it works. But, for example, the big line that they changed was when, in this film, when discussing Simba as the future king, Scar says, long live the king. Whereas in the original animated film, when he's talking about how he'll have to respect Simba... His answer is, I'll have to go practice my curtsy. And yes. he just, he says it, and it's, it's so tongue-in-cheek, but it's also done as like a backhanded compliment, and I do miss that element of that character here. You know what, though? I think that all serves to make this feel more real because a lot of the humor is gone. Like, you still get it in this version with Timon and Pumbaa, but like, the hyenas... It's gone. Rafiki, gone. He's not nearly as eccentric as he is in the original. So I think that they were trying to ground it to make this feel more real. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, like, the hyenas weren't these dim-witted characters um, anymore, which is, I think, probably the reason that we got a very abbreviated version of Be Prepared, because so much of that song is talking about how dim-witted the hyenas are, and that's just not the case here, um, because they were trying to to the real animosity between hyenas and lions. They weren't just these dumb characters. Yeah, and I think, like, the few places where his lines did stray were probably a good thing because I think, you know, Chiwetel Ejiofor was trying to do a much more sort of Shakespearean performance of Scar, and to the extent that he was having to do that sort of still within the confines of Jeremy Irons' script, it was a little bizarre to hear him trying to sort of deliver the same lines but with a very different tone. You know, I, I definitely appreciate what Chiwetel Ejiofor was trying to do with the character, but um, yeah, within the confines of the script, it was it was a little bit strange, and that's probably why Timon and Pumbaa stole the show in so many ways, because they just sort of let them take off so much more with their characters. A lot of w- their dialogue was improv, and they let Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner kind of just take it and run with it, because they know each other socially outside of doing this film, and we'll get to them in just a minute. I love the fact staying in this scene, that James Earl Jones was back as Mufasa and how Favreau himself had said, we've changed basically every actor out, but when you think about this character specifically, it's James Earl Jones. And I think where 
very lucky that we still have James Earl Jones with us. You, you don't see him an awful lot in film anymore. So to get him back to take this role on again and, and sort of do it, he was a lot more gentle. He was a little bit more, I don't want to say mature because James Earl Jones obviously was a grown man when he did it. But just the way that he played it um, was so different here. Uh, um, I, I'd say maybe more stoic than he did it in the original I, I would slightly, agree with that. Uh, yeah. Slightly. I just can't imagine what it must have been like for Favreau to direct something like that because, like you said, it is so iconic and the voice is so married to that character, much like Robin Williams is to Jeannie. I mean, obviously that was not an option this time around. But for this one, I'm glad that they recognize that, that like you can't recast him. But like, can you imagine Favreau's position of like, well... That was cute last time, but we're going to redo it now. Right, And who do you get? I mean, you know, his voice is, it's got so much power behind it. And it it's so commanding. It's so authoritative that I think you would have been hard pressed to find anybody to do this role. Morgan Freeman. <laughs> like, but, oh, that is a good choice. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, like, that's really the only person I can even think of that would touch it. Actually, been pretty cool, um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think sort of it was the necessary tie-in to the original that not changing him out, especially for the cloud scene, though. Like then it really is like the voice yeah. of God, just you know, coming yeah, out. yeah, yeah. He always plays God. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Morgan Freeman would have been great casting, but I think you're right. When it comes to the cloud scene, I don't know that he could have. I don't know that it would have fit the same way as James Earl Jones. I think it would have fit. I, I just think it's like. Yeah, it's you. You have Morgan the same way that we have James Earl Jones tied to Mufasa. You do have Morgan Freeman tied to God. True, that's right. I, that's right. He was in the in the Jim Carrey movie. He played God. Yeah. Uh, uh, whatever Almighty. Bruce made, Almighty. Like, yeah, Bruce. Oh, they've made like six of them now. Um, <laughs> you know who else was pretty good here was John Oliver. Rowan Atkinson was Zazu in the original Lion King. It's John Oliver here. Um, again, not as eccentric, not as silly, but still, he's very much tied into his job. I love that he is still so dedicated to being there for the king and for Simba. In the original, though, he's very much aware of his role and sort of what they think of him. And I think that that's shown very much in the pouncing scene where he knows he's about to be pounced on by Simba and Mufasa's sort of like, no, turn around. Your role is to do whatever I need and that's including being attacked by my son. But here, he's almost like completely detached because he is so focused on just getting out what he has to say and talking about the flamingos and, and all of the sort of... Um, coffee talk that there is, you know, amongst uh, all of the animals at Pride Rock, that he, he almost comes off as gossipy a little bit. But again, it, it works for the film and it works for this version of the character. I'm going to let Lisa go because the <laughs> listeners could not see the look on her face. Uh -oh. And I think it kind of mirrors my feelings. No, no, you go ahead. You, uh, I don't, this one. So, just somebody take a shot at me at this point. This one's <laughs> tied to Rowan Atkinson for me. I mean, John Oliver does it well, but I miss the holier than thou Zazu. Yeah, I mean, it's it's flat for me. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's no, it's fine. It's you know what it is though. Like I understand why people feel that way, and I wonder, like you had said before, Lisa, 
he's in a position where because he did take almost the same exact script, which was written a very certain way for very certain actors, and they're trying yeah. to recast it and make it feel more real, it, it does, similar to how you have this Shakespearean reading for Scar, how yeah. this one is sort of, like you said, for you it fell flat, and for Jackie it fell flat. I mean, it was a character written for someone else. It's difficult to break out of that, you know, and to the extent that the movie didn't. Like, if you're going to recast a movie and remake a movie, you have to revisit. You have to revisit everything. <laughs> yeah, I think he lost a little bit of the snark and a little bit of the zing. And, like, I can live without him singing I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts, but I, they sort of dumbed him down a little bit. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that he was, he, he did play a more prevalent role in the original film. And I think that's why, like, you do see a lot less of him here. I think one scene in particular where um, he, and, and I remember thinking it then, and I thought it again when we watched the film this week, was when Simba comes back to Pride Rock after all of that time, and everybody thinks that he's, he has been killed, and Zazu is just like, your majesty. He's not surprised at all or even relieved that Simba was there. I think for me, where we feel it most is the next scene, which is can't wait to be king. Because I feel like in the animation, they had to work a lot harder to dupe him. Yes, I think you're right. In this case, and he even calls it upon himself where he's like, uh, I, I can't see you. I don't know where you went. Yeah, meanwhile, they're like under an elephant. Yeah. They were more mischievous in the animated version than they were here. Here, they're sort of just running with the zebras, and like you said, they're ducking under elephants. Again, I think that there are limitations because they are trying to do this live action, quote-unquote live action. So you can't have zebras and hippos, everybody look left and shift to the left, and everybody shift to the right. You no, I wasn't have to work expecting like the pyramid of animals, but... You know, just as far as their relationship to Zazu, I feel like they didn't have to try nearly as hard this time around. But overall, the song really surprised me and the way that they handled certain things, because I thought this was probably going to be the most difficult thing that they had to work around. You know, and it's like you said, with the everybody looked left, everybody looked right. Um, I think what they did with the parting of the giraffes to make the spotlight was really clever. So they did find a couple of really cool cheats to still get that excitement and the tone of the song that we're familiar with. What did you think of this sequence, Lisa? Yeah, I mean, I I didn't have any issues with it. it. You know, I felt like it was, you know, pretty well done, all things considered. I mean, obviously, they didn't have the leeway of, you know, fully animating what they were working with. And yeah, I mean, I agree with you completely. I, I, I think that, you know, within the confines of doing something in a more realistic setting, they pulled it off pretty well. I think... Part of that is because the child actors who play uh, young Nala, that was uh, Shahadi Wright Joseph and young Simba, who was played by J.D. McCrary, they're both fine young actors, but they're very talented singers. The fact that they could carry this tune as well, I think, speaks a lot to them as, as entertainers, first and foremost. But I she also. She was from Broadway. 
they picked her from from the Lion King. And he was um, he was in a Donald Glover music he video, right? Played him, yeah. He played young young Donald Glover before, so that was that was kind of an appropriate tie-in. That was good. But I think that these kids were just so good here oh, yeah. that it lent well to the song being, I think, as good as it was in the original. And even if you have issues with the way that they shot it or animated it here you can almost overlook it because the performance is so good and then you meet the hyenas here and and the big difference other than there's no more bonsai and ed shenzi is the leader of the hyenas voiced by lupita nyongo who is perfection yeah her voice is like butter and it works and you have kamari and azizi these are the others um, and that was Keegan-Michael Key and um, Eric Andre. I think Shenzi is the leader works. And as we had mentioned before, Ed was not out of his mind. They weren't so much. I mean, they were they were comic relief, but not quite as much as they were in the animated film. And I think that for me, given the fact that they're trying to make this a realistic adaptation, this is a change that I actually think did work. I mean, again, like... Lion King is a very dark movie, and the sort of comic levity that we got in the original, I think we all needed to a certain extent, and in sort of taking it to this more documentary-esque National Geographic-style film, you kind of lose the ability to do that, and that's fine, but I think, you know, especially those of us who were extremely familiar with the original and the levity that we got from things like the old version of The Hyenas it fell a little flat for me to have to see them in such a realistic way. I mean, there were sort of some things that were interesting, like when they had to sort of acknowledge like the lack of personal space, you know, like there were some things that were cool that they kind of had to say out loud because you were seeing it in this new context. Um, and, I, and I thought that was really interesting. I think the sort of balance of darkness and comedy that we got in the original that we lose so much, you know, the, the hyenas are a perfect example um, in this new version. You know, it took away a little bit for me and I think probably for a lot of people who are so used to the original version. What slept for me on the hyenas was actually the CGI. This is my, my one issue with the CGI. And I hate saying that because I understand the painstaking efforts that they went through, but I just feel like they're not as detailed as everything else. I, I think the the color palette is too close, so you don't really get like the mm-hmm. contrast between like the gray body and the black mane. And it just looks like really clumpy. And I feel like I want them to be sharper. Why well, yeah. And I'm I'm just wondering if, if the hyena as an animal just doesn't really translate well to being animated in a way where it's supposed to look real. You can stylize them a lot more when you're doing the hand-drawn animation. That is true. And I think that that's where you did get, you know, you got more of that comic relief even in the visual because, like, the hair was a mess, especially with Ed. He had, like, the snaggle tooth and the tongue was always hanging out and that kind of thing. You definitely had to lose that because, like Lisa said, you know, this is much more serious. And I, I don't know, though. It, it just, the visual just doesn't work for me. So I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here because we might, you, you might be building up to a larger conversation on this topic, but we're, we're stepping into the CGI realm here. So, I mean, this is the whole movie's issue for me, right? I mean, the hyenas are a great example, but li- the lions are a pretty good example, too. Like, 
you lose the facial expressions in the yes. whole movie. And in an, in an animated film, you should be able to watch it with no dialogue, with the sound off, and know what's going on. And there's you, you can't like you to laugh like you know like you know the t-shirts that have like Darth Vader in like nine different pictures and it's like the expressions of Darth Vader and it's like Darth Vader angry, Darth Vader sad, Darth Vader disappointed, and it's all just like Darth Vader's mask. Like you could do that with Mufasa in this yeah. movie because he's just a lion, angry lion, sad lion, funny lion. Like it's just it's just a lion's face. Um, and that's just, if you're going to make a National Geographic style version of The Lion King, then that's what you're going to get. And I can appreciate that. And be, between my respect for Favreau and my um, respect for the feat of engineering that was the creation of these visuals, it hurts to say it out loud. But the fact of the matter is, across the board in this movie, it's not just the hyenas, but across the board in this movie, the huge thing that you lose is the emotional connection to these characters because they don't have expression anymore. And I think that's why I loved Scar so much in this movie because he was the one character where just through his like sickliness, you could identify with his pain in a way that I didn't identify with the emotions of any of the other characters. So I'm sorry if I jumped the gun there. I know we're like, I'm sure it's going to be a larger conversation, but as we were stepping into that with the hyenas, I felt like it might be. No, it's, it's absolutely no, you relevant. Just hit the nail on the head. And I think you're right. You can kind of play it off with Scar and Mufasa because they are more stoic, but where you feel that the most is Simba because he's cute, but I, I feel like he's far less cute than, than the animation. And, and that's exactly it is because you're losing quite a range of emotions. I think to touch on what you guys are saying here, the facial expressions, yes, but what stood out to me more than anything else, and it does kind of go hand in hand, is that what you got out of the original Lion King, part of what made that movie so brilliant and, and part of what made it such a masterpiece when it came to animation was not just the facial expressions, but I, I say it a lot, because they say it is the windows into the soul, and it's the eyes. And you do lose that here, because they are trying to make it look very real, which I understand. And we can debate or discuss at the end of the review whether this was a movie that had to be remade or should have been remade, and we'll, we'll kind of sum that up in our final synopsis there. But I think that's where it's lacking the most, is where you do lose it in the eyes. And a big change here that I did not like either was that Scar has not been working with the hyenas the entire time. That was the case in the original film, but mm -hmm. here he sort of just walks into their territory and at first they thought he was Mufasa and then they realized he wasn't and they basically threatened to kill him. And I just don't get the feeling that Scar has been scheming this entire time. Like, that's, that's a big difference between this Scar and the Scar that we're used to. Because he's been with the hyenas the whole time and he's been giving them bones and giving them food, like, I feel like he had an endgame in his mind. He just didn't know exactly how he was going to get there, but he knew what his ultimate goal was. Here, I feel like he's kind of just shooting from the hip. I don't want to say it's unmotivated, but I feel like he kind of just came up with this plan. Right, because... 
in the animation, when we get to be prepared, like he's ready to weaponize these hyenas and he's been planting the seeds the entire time. I have a lot of thoughts on be prepared, so I'm going to let Lisa go first. No, I mean, I think just on be prepared, I, you know, when there were rumors that it wasn't going to be in the movie at all, obviously there was mass outrage, you know, and so we got this shortened version. Um, but no, I mean, like I said, I mean, I, I, I didn't find it terribly satisfying, but I also don't know quite short of rewriting a different version of the song. Like they couldn't deliver the same song because the hyenas weren't the same characters. Like the whole, all of be prepared is not all of it, but large portion of be prepared is talking to dim witted hyenas. And that wasn't the character anymore. And so you had to pull all of those lines. So it, it would have been nice to see a differently expanded version of it, but I guess I understand on paper why they couldn't deliver that same song. <laughs> well, I think for me, because I'm just going to go ahead and have my say, and then I'm going to let you go. My leg is yeah, shaking. I know, you're twitching right now. <laughs> um, I, I mean, yes, it's short, but I think what... Um, I'm sort of taken out of it from the jump because he, they, I'm not going to say they changed the lyrics, but it's like this weird kind of, I'm not even going to say it's sing-talky. He's kind of just talking in rhymes and he's kind of doing it to a beat and you know, it's going into be prepared. And I'm, I keep waiting for them. I'm like, Oh, are, are they leading into a new version of the song? And he kind of just goes into the last chorus and it's over. So, I didn't think the lead-in was any good. I didn't love the change to it because I think Be Prepared is one of the best Disney villain songs that has ever been written. And Favreau, I mean, up to this point, he has nailed every other song. I mean, it's only been two. But my biggest issue with The Jungle Book, and you can hear our view way back on episode number three, other than I didn't like how Bill Murray played the character because I didn't find him to be nearly as endearing, I totally hated what they did with Bare Necessities. Again, you're talking about one of the most iconic songs in the Disney catalog, and that fell very flat, and I kind of felt this was very much the same. I totally agree with what you said. It, the song feels like a false start. And you have Lisa to thank because this rant would have been a lot longer because what you just made me realize is you're right. Because they've changed up the hyenas so much, you are taking a lot of the lyrics out because you've lost that relationship and you've also lost a lot of the panache that Scar has. So I kind of thought that that was also why they went with this more, you know, we've used the word Shakespearean a lot for Scar and that's why it was almost more of like this chant than a song. But it's even just the way that they arranged it. And this is why I'm completely biased because this is one of my favorite sequences in any Disney animation ever. I knew we weren't going to get green smoke and that's fine. But I hate that they shortened it. I wish that they had changed the lyrics to fit the new dynamic between the hyenas and Scar or I wish that they had left it out altogether because they ruined it. This sounds like bad coffee house slam poetry. It doesn't, you lose the evilness of Scar. This doesn't make him feel like a villain. It makes him feel angsty. Like they may as well have called in my chemical romance to sing this one. 
Yeah, I'm. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's. I have. I. What do you want from me? I have no response to that. Um, I can't believe you just threw my Chemical Romance at me right now. I sure did. That's how much I hated it. <sighs> short story made very short. We saw them once. They opened for somebody. They were terrible. They opened for Blink One Eighty Two. That's who it was. They almost and, ruined and, it. It was really bad. You know, I never. But joking aside, I never. I never looked at it that way. I never thought of it in an angsty sort of thing. I thought that he was just sort of flying by the seat of his pants and didn't really have a great plan in place. But I think there's some validity to that. No, it's like, honestly, he does go for the big note at the end, but like you half expect it to be like, be prepared. I hate my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Because he just loses his evil. It, it's true. It, he does. And again, is it the way that he's being played? Is it the way that he's being played reading an old script, as Lisa pointed out before? I, I don't know. But there's there's just something about him that's not working here, which is a shame because, as Lisa pointed out before, the way he's animated, it would have been so well done if you would have been conflict. You would have been conflicted because you would have felt so bad for this character who's inherently evil. And that is a big swing and miss. The other change that they make here, and I actually did think it was for the better. And again, it's like the seesaw back and forth where he loses the evil, but then he's so diabolical. I really like how he lures Simba into this gorge. In the original film, it's just, hey, come on down here and wait. We have a surprise for you. And he walks away. And then the stampede happens. But he... He thinks up this ridiculous backstory about how the lion must find their roar. And he he makes it up and he tells this lie and he does it with so much conviction. And he is so good at it because he's going to set up this situation where this roar started this stampede. He's literally going to put the blood on the paws, for a lack of better term, of Simba and take everything off of himself. And the fact that he thought that out and, and came up with this, this detailed lie and the fact that he made it about something that Mufasa had done because he knows how much Mufasa means to Simba. I mean... I really thought this was a brilliant change. Maybe I'm overanalyzing this, but I really think that this was a change for the better. That was actually something I never realized because, again, we've lost it in the sequence before, is that in Be Prepared, he's explaining to the hyenas that they're going to take out Mufasa, and you've you've lost that completely. So the setup is a lot faster because he's just giving it to Simba. Yeah. I admittedly didn't process that as much as, I mean, I, I want to look back at it now that you've said that, because again, like it just, it all happens so fast that I don't think I really processed an appreciation for that. Um, But that is interesting. It's good because you, you know, you do lose a lot of um, scars sort of scheming nature leading up to that. And so that does a little bit to balance what you've lost. I'm going to have to watch it again and just skip over Be Prepared. That way I'm not still like reeling from that song and I can actually pay attention to the death scene. Yeah, and that scene, that whole long live the king scene, even redone, I think it is. And, and it, you know that it's coming, so there's no real anticipation for it because you, you already know it's going to happen, but I think it is still as heartbreaking here 
as it was in the original, as well as everything that happens after. Simba nuzzling up against him. I mean, it's it's totally heartbreaking. I also think they made the cliff seem a lot higher because the struggle to climb back up was so much more, and it looks like the fall is longer. So the whole scene is just a thousand times more gut-wrenching. Yeah, I mean, I think like probably the trampling would have been too much to process looking at real animals. Right. And so maybe that gave more of the death to the height of the fall, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, you kind of really see it happening in the animated version or in the original animated version. But I'll say, like, I didn't really connect. I mean, like like we've said, when he was singing, he was fantastic. But I, and it's probably largely because of the lack of facial expression and also just because he was so precocious and at times borderline unlikable. But I didn't really connect with young Simba until that moment when he was nuzzling up against him. So for me, that, that was sort of, that the movie kind of took a turn for me at that point because I was definitely having... I was feeling very sympathetic towards Scar, which was very strange for me. And and I was having a a lot of trouble connecting with Simba up until that moment. And I think when we hit that moment, the movie sort of turned a little bit for me as far as how much I was stomaching what I was seeing or able to process what I was seeing. I think what they lost a little bit of, too, because we had talked about this when we reviewed the animation, was that they foreshadow Mufasa's death a lot more. Here... It's all through Scar. And, you know, we we touched on this earlier, that they layered his backstory more that he's actually the older sibling. He is the heir to the throne, and his younger brother has, for reasons unbeknownst to us, taken it from him. But I think you lose a lot of that. You don't lose any of the bonding, really, between Mufasa and Simba, because you see them playing, you see them hanging out, you see them when they attack Sazu. But I feel like they don't hone into the great kings of the past, as much in that whole speech because I feel like that sets up the death so much more. It could be. It's funny that uh, Lisa mentioned just now about how this was the first time that she was sort of connecting to Simba. I guess I never had an issue connecting with Simba in this version of the film because as much as I love the original film, I remember even as a kid, and this is going to sound so dumb, but even as a kid, not loving young Simba so much. And I think it's because I just wasn't a fan of Jonathan Taylor Thomas because I hated because he, no, no, no. He used to drive me crazy on home improvement because I didn't like how he and the older brother would pick on Mark. And for whatever reason, just that brattiness, I, you know, I'm going to be king. Like he just still had that air about him that he had the middle child syndrome going on when he was the only child. And it ju- I just hated that way that he portrayed it. I, and I've never actually, I don't think I ever said that when we did the original, well, we did the review of the original version of this film. But I guess looking back upon it now, because I didn't have that bias against the voice actor, I never had a problem connecting with this version of Simba. See, I'm the total opposite because I always loved young Simba in the animation. Not so much here because it's true. You're losing a lot of what makes you sympathize with him. And I always found... Matthew Broderick to be kind of evasive and hiding his head in the sand and I mean obviously he's running from his problems but he's just so like mopey and whiny about it and here I feel like until this point this Simba is kind of whiny. Now we get to the point where Simba's chased away the hyenas go to pursue him he falls off the cliff they just say forget it we're gonna tell Shenzi that he's dead 
we're not even going to bother with it. And that's where you get introduced to Timon and Pumbaa. And Lisa said it before, they really do steal the show here. I mentioned the actors before, Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen. And I have to say that when I heard Seth Rogen was getting cast to play Pumbaa, and I like, I like Seth Rogen, I do, but I, I remember thinking to myself, oh, please no. Because I thought it was going to be the Seth Rogen that we've seen... Seth Rogen doesn't really act. He kind of just shows up and it's Seth Rogen and everything. And I didn't know if it was going to translate to this. And the two of them together are just absolutely phenomenal. To me, like the movie just sort of takes flight as soon as they, they hit the screen. Like they break the fourth wall at times. I mean, the Be Our Guest thing was fantastic. I love the meaningless line of indifference was like, yes. yeah. You know, and, and again, I think like, to an extent, like the fact that they actually let them ad lib a bit and become, you know, their own versions of the characters rather than recasting the movie and then offering up the same script, you know, I, I think is, is it, besides the fact that they were just fantastic together and they, they did such a good job. I mean, I, I think the fact that they were allowed the breathing room to do what they did made it as good as it was. Yeah, I was kind of shocked by the casting show. I mean, you've got Billy on the street and Seth Rogen. Billy Eichner, okay. I'm like, all right, he'll he'll pull this out. He'll be fine. But I, that was, Seth Rogen was kind of a nail biter for me. I'm not going to lie. Because I really thought he was just going to show up and be like, I'm going to smoke a bowl and get to be Pumbaa and then get my Disney paycheck. <laughs> and yeah. he managed to do the whole movie without the laugh. And what was really impressive is how seriously he took this. Because he was really excited to have gotten this role and then he found out that they were going to do it as a musical because there was a big debate whether or not to keep it as a musical and when he found out that he was going to have to sing he was like well I, I can't and um, once they brought Pharrell on board he was like all right you know it's, it's like if if you can't ice skate and you're told that Wayne, he's actually quoted in an interview saying that if you can't ice skate and you're told that Wayne Gretzky is going to teach you, he's like, all right, I'm on board. I can do this. And, you know, he, he worked. They had to do about a million takes for him, but he really worked. And some of the notes don't exactly work out for him, but I think he's a solid Pumbaa. And, and he totally had fun with it. I think the interesting change in this character, in both of them really, the more that I think about it, in the original version, yes, as Lisa said before, I think the premise of this film is very dark. It's a family film. I think Timon and Pumbaa, there's some humor that's over the head of a kid, but I think for the most part, the way that they had them played originally, they kind of toe the line for adults and kids. I think that Timon and Pumbaa are completely grown up here, and this is just straight adult humor. Like when Timon says to Simba, who has just lost his father and been forced out of his home, how are you in as few words as possible? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that it's also sort of an interesting commentary because I think that's kind of how we are now. It's like, hey, I want to hear the news story, but if I can't read it on a Twitter post, I don't want to hear about it. I think that that was a really interesting change, but it worked. I think it worked for the story, and I think it worked for Billy Eichner because he pulled it off well. And similarly, like how he was in Noel, and he was trying to digitize everything, and the whimsy was out, and it was all just very cut and dry and black and white. And I think, I don't want to say he's typecast, but I think given his demeanor and his sense of humor, these are characters that 
I think they lend themselves well to him, and I think that this is really within his range. So now we've got Akuna Matata, and we've got Donald Glover in as Simba, who I think is perfect casting. Yeah, I mean, obviously Matthew Broderick did not sing in the original Lion King. That was actually the lead singer from Toto. Uh, was it Toto? Or, yeah, it was Toto. He was the lead singer of Toto, was the adult Simba. And that makes a lot of sense. Matthew Broderick, we know, can sing now because he has since done the producers. But obviously, between the two, Donald Glover, far more musically inclined. And I like how he kind of gave this a little bit more soulfulness than you had in the original version of the film. Absolutely. He was cast perfectly. You know, again, like there's sort of the like live action sort of cringe moments. I watching a an actual lion eat grubs was a little harder to process then. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, it doesn't work this way. Uh, but but no, I mean, he was he was capped perfectly. I don't think anybody in the theater didn't laugh when, as they are trying to end the song, and Donald Glover is still singing, and uh, Seth Rogen in character says to him, yeah, you've grown 400 pounds since we started. That was The whole sequence calls itself out. Like, this time they didn't censor Pumbaa saying fart. I yeah. could have done without that. But that's also, that's not my sense of humor. I'm surprised they didn't do something else with it. Like, I would have been fine if they cut him off again. And I'm surprised that they didn't improv something else. Because they improved a lot of it. That, that end of the song, as they're fading out, they, they ad-libbed all of that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not a surprise. Because similarly, I think they put them in that black box. And, and Donald Glover himself said that at times, like he just wasn't even speaking because he was having so much fun watching the two of them go back and forth that he just kind of stood there and said, no, I'm just here to I'm just here to watch. Yeah, that's a blooper reel I want to see. It was just a lot of the like the moments in the movie where like the movie wasn't afraid to laugh at itself. I mean, stepping going, you know, back in time a, a bit again, like when they first say who can Matata and there's not like a reaction they're like, usually that gets a bigger, bigger reaction. You know, there's, she's supposed to have heard it before because the movie came out, you know, a long time ago and was very popular. There was just a lot of cleverness and a lot of, you know, breaking of the fourth wall and a lot of moments like that the movie wasn't afraid to laugh at itself that I kind of wish we'd gotten more throughout. And then we are introduced to Beyonce as Nala as she is getting ready to leave Pride Rock. Now Pride Rock is sort of it's it's disheveled we, you know we've seen it before and we're seeing it here i like that they layer the story here though because yes. obviously pride rock is decimated we see that scar has pretty much run everything into the ground but now he's trying to get sarabi to marry him um sarabi voiced by uh alfrey woodard she she was great i really liked her as sarabi but yeah it's it's just an interesting choice that they made to to go a little bit deeper with the story and I thought that Beyonce played it well. I'm not going to say she played it safe because, you know, what does that mean? I kind of feel like she's sort of just reading lines, but that's not to say that she's doing a poor job. Other than her singing Can You Feel the Love Tonight, I kind of felt like Nala could have been fill in the blank. I, I, I don't think it, ha you know, it didn't have to be her. She didn't do a bad job. She was sort of just there. She was fine. She was you know, thoroughly unobjectionable, and you know, she sang beautifully, which Beyonce does, I no, guess. And we, let's be real. That's why she was there. Exactly, and that in her name. Um, but you know, the, the timing was the timing was a little strange. Like in the original, when they originally see each other, and 
Nala runs up and he and he says who he is. There's like a there's like a pause where she kind of processes it, and then they're like, oh my gosh, like and they, you know they reconnect, and that beat is kind of missing in this one, which was a little jarring for me that it was it went right into the recognition. So minutia, but something that threw me off when I was watching it. Can you feel the love tonight? Was beautiful. It was a little strange to hear it sung during the day. But I guess, can you hear the love this afternoon? Wouldn't have translated. <laughs> <laughs> Quite as well. And I, and again, like going back to, you know, Scar and um, Serbi, um, just again, like it was, it was just getting that much more depth of character out of him and that much more backstory and sort of the, the sort of empathetic notes to his character and then jumping ahead a little bit, but very much on the same topic you know he doesn't slap her he slaps her in the original yes you're right and that again to me felt very deliberate both because it probably would have been harder to watch in current times but also because i i do think he was very deliberately being made a more sympathetic character because that was that was a very that was one of the most glaring absences in this movie for me was the fact that he did not slap her that's a really great point and no, and you're you're absolutely right. That goes way beyond, you know, you're not going to see something like that in a movie now. But I, I think you're right. That does definitely serve to the character. Yeah, I totally miss that. I do too. Yeah. As as did I miss? Can you feel the love this afternoon? I had <laughs> like that. I didn't. That was perfect. But I didn't. I hadn't even thought about that. Do you know what? Um, and and actually, it goes back to what we've been talking about, about the lack of facial expression. Do you know uh, what was missing here for me? And and it'll make sense when we talked about the original Lion King. When they're singing the song and they're sort of rolling around together around that, I think it was the waterfall or the riverbank, and she kisses him and kind of gives him that little come-hither stare and he kind of has like this dumbfounded look upon him like, this is actually happening that all of that is totally missing here. No, you're right. And you know, to, to what you were saying before, Lisa, you said it's minutia. I, I disagree. I don't think it's minutia. I think it's important because it feels so rushed to get into. Can you feel the love tonight? And I think that's also why is because you hit the nail on the head. It's the afternoon. Just give us (laughs) a couple more hours to build on this relationship. And like you have them reunite and then all of a sudden it's boom, they're in love let it just breathe a little bit and let them reacquaint themselves with each other again and remember, you know, what it was that they loved about their childhood friend. And that's where that friendship turns into love. And you just, you don't get that anymore. I think part of why I get distracted and why I was distracted and didn't catch on any of that as well is because, and maybe this might seem like minutia, but it like Seth Rogen's commentary as they're building into the song, is totally off-putting for me. When Timon is singing about there's magic in the air, and he's like, oh yeah, it's everywhere. Like, he he says it after every single thing that Timon says, and it's at this point where I think it's too much. It's like, we've talked about how the movie has called itself out a couple of times, but here it almost seems like it's trying to be too much of a parody, as if it's trying to call itself out for its ridiculousness. And and it's not ridiculous at all. Well, this is because he can't sing. Yeah, but Pumbaa... Pumba in the animation sings a little bit here. Yeah, at the very end, though. And he does that with with Eichner here, but I just... 
his commentary was just a little too much for me. That's fair. I, I just thought it cheapened it a little bit. You know what was a great addition, though, and we, we skipped over it because, uh, again, it rushes right into Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Uh, Nala's entrance. Oh, my God. They had a little song here, and they do the In the Jungle. Yeah, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Uh, it, it's the perfect entrance. It's such an obvious song, but you wish they hadn't overlooked it in the animation because this is just hilarious. It's really well done here, and I remember when we saw this movie the first time, I figured, okay, we, we saw a clip of this in the trailer. And in fact, in the original trailer, I think this was the only bit of Timon and Pumbaa you saw. So you know that they're going to do it again. Um, and by this point, I mean, it's almost a shot-for-shot remake, so you know it's coming, um, even if you hadn't seen the trailer. When it kept going on and on, I was kind of like, oh, jeez, we, we're going we're gonna to force an, another song here. But it's absolutely perfect because it lulls you into this false sense of security. And then there she is. Timing is everything. I also like the, um, again, where Billy Eichner, and I'm sure that if this is all improv, where Simba's saying, oh, this is my best friend Nala from when we were growing up. And, and he's kind of laughing. He's like, oh, what fun. You were just about to kill <laughs> yeah. us. Um, it kind of broke up what was otherwise a very awkward moment. And at least you got a couple of laughs out of it. And I think, you know, as we pointed out before, this is where they really work as the comic duo, because as we've mentioned, you know, quite a few times at this point, you're not getting it out of the hyenas. So these these two characters specifically really need to carry the load. They do. But I feel like you're shoving all of the comedy that you missed, like we were talking about, eliminating it from Rafiki, elim eliminating it from the hyenas, and you shoved it all into Timon and Pumbaa here because I feel like you lose more of... You lose a little bit more of the story as far as Nala trying to call Simba back. I feel like that gets executed in, like, two lines, and she's like, you gotta come back. Everything is garbage right now. We need our real king, and he's like, nah, and that's it. I feel like there's not, again, you're losing a lot of the build. And then he does decide to go back and then just chases her down. The distance, by the way, also does not seem as far from Pride Rock as to where Timon and Pumbaa are. Because he catches up with her pretty quickly. Yeah, in the original film, it, it seems like he's going on and on and on for, for days a day. Before he gets to them. Yeah. And here it's, I mean, not that, not that you know the passage of time. 10, 15 minutes. Or distance. It's I could be quick. wrong. I've never been to Africa. But, you know, it just seems fast that he caught up with her. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's very true. Yeah, I, I think this this part of the movie just kind of was sort of snowballing over, over itself for me. It, it's hard to, it's interesting to step back and have this conversation because I'm processing things that I know I didn't process, you know, in watching it originally. Because it does just feel like it's sort of tumbling over itself down a hill. Yeah, and... and I was getting the levity that I felt like I had been needing the whole movie. And I was also sort of curiously watching what was going to be happening with Beyonce. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, these are, these are interesting points. The distance is, is interesting. I think in all, though, when you compare Donald Glover's Simba to Matthew Broderick's Simba, I actually do think that I prefer this version of it. I just like the way that Donald Glover plays it because he's not... And I, listen, and I like Matthew Broderick a lot. I think if Matthew Broderick had a chance of playing it now, I think it would have been a better go for him now than it was when he did it back in, you know, 1994. I think it was just a little, as you said, a little too whiny there. Not so much the case here. And just a little bit more 
cocky because he turns his back and granted he's had to deal with so much at such a young age, but he's totally hiding behind this Hakuna Matata lifestyle. Here, I think Donald Glover plays it more like he's searching for something and he's still trying to find it, which, I mean, the Simba character is in both versions, but I feel like he's not shrugging off the responsibility as much as they did in the animation yeah i mean i think like he just seemed like sort of like a surfer dude attitude yes original you know like kind of that that mentality like without apology like unapologetically um and in this one going back again like it's a silly line but i think it's deeper than that but like quote unquote like meaningless line of indifference i think it was levity but it was also sort of questioning you know, like Hakuna Matata was just embraced as this great thing in the original. And I think that just doesn't translate to today's audience necessarily. It was interesting, you know, that they didn't just let it go and, and sort of challenging it with it, the line of meaningless line of indifference was, was a joke, but it was also sort of questioning the whole philosophy of Hakuna Matata as not necessary. you know, it, it obviously was a play on the circle of life, but it also sort of was saying, well, no worries isn't necessarily a good thing. Um, And I think we were watching the characters sort of play it out in that context. Yeah, because the way that Glover plays him here, you get the feeling that he is a more complex character, that he is conflicted. Because, Mm -hmm. as you said, with Matthew Broderick, it was more like a surfer thing. The only two times he's really conflicted, or even comes off as such, in the original animated film, is when they're looking up at the stars and he says, oh, I was once told that these are the great kings looking down upon us. And you see that here as well. And obviously, when he's seeing Mufasa after chasing Rafiki down, and yes, you have that here too, but you feel like he's still searching for that escape and he's just not been able to find it and he doesn't have that inner peace within himself that he kind of found so easily in the in the 90s version of the film. And I think, again, this is this all comes to play, like, kind of out of the imagery and the differences in the imagery that we're seeing. I mean, the way he was drawn in the original, you know, I used Surfer Dude for a reason. Like, his mane was sort of tussled and in front of his face, and it, he, it was that, that, that was what he looked like, you know, and you can't really get to that with a CGI lion because it's a noble animal, and that's what he looks like at that point. So... You, you can't really have that sort of chill silliness when you're dealing with a full-grown CGI lion. So let's talk about the scene where Simba meets Rafiki and sees Mufasa again. Talking about Rafiki specifically, I understand where they maybe wanted to make him a little bit more stoic and a little bit more all-knowing, perhaps, because he was not this highly eccentric animated character. But I do I do miss the unhinged Rafiki. Like I feel like you could have still done a play on that, and I think that was a big miss for this character. The whole Asante Sana squash banana, that's gone. You want to talk about something that's iconic that has lived on for, you know, the better part of twenty five years. To, to kind of throw that away, I think was a mistake. I can live without the Asante Sana, but what I really miss is the wisdom. Like when he smacks him over the head with his stick. And granted, that's part of the comedy that they eliminated. But the lesson there is that, you know, he says it's in the past. You can either run. Well, it's two different parts when he says it's the past. You can either run from it or learn from it. But 
when Simba says that hurts, he's like, well, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And I feel like you're losing so much of Rafiki's wisdom here. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I, I think they, they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah. Um, like they, could, they could have retained a lot of his character still, you know, with eliminating the some of the humor. What I do like here is, and, and I think this was sort of polarizing for people, when you do see Mufasa in the sky, it's not just a straight version of Mufasa in the clouds. The clouds are there, and you kind of briefly make him out in the lightning. I like that it's more abstract. So do I. I like that a lot, because I think as kids, we've all looked up into the sky, and you look at clouds, and you see what you want to see, and I felt like that was sort of a play on that here, and that's where you have this conflicted Simba is starting to find his inner peace, because he's not actually seeing Mufasa talking to him he hears the voice he sees a resemblance in these very brief flashes of light but i think he is in a sense looking inside himself and finding what he's been trying to find for all of these years i would agree with that and i'm glad that that much comes through in the scene because i feel like from when nala leaves to now they're still like rushing to get him back to pride rock to have this fight with scar so for as much as we lose with Rafiki, you don't lose the important character arc for Simba, which is important. When they eventually do get him back to Pride Rock, Lisa mentioned before, the little, it's not even little, it's so deliberate, the Be Our Guest Easter egg, again, fantastic. I was, I was doubled over. It, it's like the Russian dolls where you just keep opening one and now there's like another Disney Easter egg. It's like Disney's forming their own vortex. It's fantastic. <laughs> And then you get to the encounter at Pride Rock, and obviously Simba admits to everybody. Now, here's the thing that they didn't address, that I wish they would have addressed in this film. Scar gets, he, he gets Simba to admit that he killed Mufasa, but he never actually killed Mufasa. Nothing that he did other than being in the wrong place at the wrong time led to his death. I know he doesn't realize that, but... He never speaks up and says, well, he says it was an accident, but he never tries to explain exactly what happened. And I was just there and he tried to save me. Scar has he's, he's continuing to drive this narrative home. And Simba is kind of just going along for the ride with Matthew Broderick. OK, I think the way he played that character, who was a little bit weak, I think, I think we can agree on that. That made sense. But for this Donald Glover, who I felt portrayed a stronger character, I think that was a miss. I think that comes from cutting and changing up the runaway and never return. Because he really puts the onus on Simba before he leaves the first time. Yeah, I mean, I, that's an interesting point because I think it did rub me the wrong way more so than it did in the first. And maybe I wasn't processing why, but... Um... But with what you're saying, that it does make more sense now. Yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks volumes as to, like, how much he was brainwashed. Because he was a baby, you know, baby. But he was extremely young when it happened. And it was put in his mind that this was his fault. You know, and the extent to which he was brainwashed about it being his fault, whether he, you know, physically did it or not, you know, was neither here nor there, I guess, for him as an adult. I also think that the... The way that the film ends with the hyena attack on Scar, I think that it is as brutal here as it is in the original. I like the fact that they, well, obviously you're going to cut away from it. You're not going to show what really happens. But 
I mean, they don't leave much to the imagination. You're watching the shadows reflecting from the fire, but, I mean, they're showing you exactly what's happening to them. But I still think it's the best ending for that character, and I'm glad they didn't deviate from that. No, I think that's kind of like what Lisa was saying before, how they kind of soften Mufasa's death by creating the idea that it comes from the fall and not the stampede. Whereas in the animation, you kind of get that Scar's death is in the fire and not like you see the hyenas, but you kind of feel like the fire is what's taking him out first. Here, it's just really vicious and more, you know, as we've said, more National Geographic. Final synopsis on this one. I think for me, where do I rank it in the Disney live action remakes? I do, in spite of some of its warts, I do rank it high. Did it bump Cinderella? No. Because the thing is, as I said earlier, and I said it on the episode when we reviewed it, the thing with Cinderella was at times it was overacted, at times it was cheesy, but it's not until you've seen the movie a couple of times that you realize it lends itself to being that way so that the splash of cold water that happens when the tone changes after her father's death, it makes it all very necessary. And I think that they did a lot, not so much with her, so much as they did with the background characters. I think, and like Lisa said before, Prince Charming specifically, and I think Kit was his name in that movie, if I, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yes. So they did more to build on characters like that. In this case, it's a borderline shot-for-shot remake. Some things work, some things don't. When I look at some of the other live-action Disney films that they've done remakes of, like Jungle Book, like Beauty and the Beast, which we haven't spoken about on this show yet other than our critique of the same thing over and over again, those are movies where I see them and I think, you know what, I wouldn't have minded a shot-for-shot remake. Because when you tackle something that is just this good, you're setting yourself up. I mean, you really are exposing yourself. But I do believe this is, in all, a very, I think it is a very good remake of the film. The question that we always ask on this show is whether or not it holds up to the original. And that's what I liked so much about your blog post, was that you didn't even ask that question. You asked, you, you answered the was it necessary. And you were like, haters be damned. I just enjoyed this for what it was. And I really wish that I could look at these films from that aspect. I think, and you, you will disagree with me, Aladdin was really the first one of the live action remakes that I just enjoyed so much. I didn't care about whether or not they did right by the original. So for this one, for me, I love the cast. I think they put together an amazing ensemble. That scores really high marks for me. I like that they chose to layer the backstory a little bit more, especially with Scar. Was it a technological achievement? Absolutely. But it almost grieves me to say this because I love Favreau and he can do no wrong in my book. And I think that he completely did it a justice. But with all of that being said, as much as I enjoyed this, the original is going to be better hands down for me because you're just losing so much of the fun. And what was amazing about the first one is that, you know, you made these animals look so realistic, but like they emoted 
And I think without that, you're losing the heart and soul of this story. And without that, you have nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think Lion King is Hamlet told through animals. It's a massive character study. And massive character studies need expression. And some movies lend themselves to live action and some movies lend themselves to animation. And I think at the end of the day, there's no way that I'm ever going to, you know, say that this new version of the movie outranks in any way, shape or form the original. I enjoyed it because I was sort of fascinated by it. I was interested in it. I thought it was an incredibly interesting process to watch sort of how the, and I obviously wrote about this, you know, originally when I, when I, the blog post that you just referenced, but you know, how the, um, the fact that it was, you know, CGI quote unquote live action, whatever lions forced Favreau's hand, you know, in creating a different movie. I thought it was fascinating. The thing that breaks my heart to some extent to say is that I don't know that the rewatchability is there. I will watch the original Lion King till the day I die. I don't know that I would ever feel the need to put this one on again. I thought it was fascinating. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it for what it was. I accepted it for what it was. I, I don't think any work of art is necessary or not necessary. And so I don't think that's a fair ground to come in on on any movie. I enjoyed it. I thought it was sort of a fascinating case study. Um, you know, yeah. that being said, yeah, rewatch, if, if you're judging it on rewatchability, I, I hate to say it out loud, it doesn't check that box for me. And you said before just now, Jackie, that this movie was not as good as the original hand-drawn animation. To be honest with you, even the really good ones, in, in my opinion, none of them really are better. And I think part of the... I, for lack of a better term, I think part of the problem that Disney is having when they attack these things is that you're remaking your classics. Here's the thing, though. I get why you're doing that, because there's marketability there. I don't want to see you remake this. I want to see you remake The Black Cauldron. I want to see you remake Treasure Planet. I want to see you take a movie that maybe... Was a piece of garbage? Well, in the case of The Black Cauldron, yes. With some of these other movies where maybe, like, Treasure Planet was, to me, and again, I have not watched this in a long time, I'd have to rewatch it, but not really thinking this is a movie I'm going to watch more than once. But knowing now, you can do a lot with it technically. Maybe that's where they need to shift. And instead of tackling timeless classics, they need to try and remake things that they say, you know what, we can do it better now. Could you really do The Lion King better? The answer is no. Could you really do Beauty and the Beast better? The answer is no. The answer has been no for every single one that they've done. And that's not to say they're all bad, but I don't think they're really... For what I, I mean, These movies are all making a billion and a half dollars. Disney doesn't care what I have to say. But I don't know that for a Disney fan that holds these movies so close to their heart that this is what we want to keep seeing over and over again. And... I'm just going to say Little Mermaid has disaster written all over it. I'm curious. I, I will say, you know, the one exception to everything that you were just saying is the one that went straight to television in a way, Lady and the Tramp. So we talked about that a few weeks ago, and it it was very good. Fantastic. And it's it's animals. Look what they did. You know, I mean, it's humans, too. And it was real dogs, of course. But... I mean, that's the exception for me. I mean, I, again, like, I'm, I'm sure if, like, the original Lady and the Tramp was one of, the, like, you know, near and dear to my heart, like it is for some people, I'm sure I'd feel differently. But, God, that was a good movie. It's a great movie. It really was. 
then that was the first one that we watched on Disney Plus because Disney yeah. Plus launched while we were actually in the parks. We were down there that week. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Please, for our listeners, if you could just let them know where they can find you on social media, where they can find the blog. You know, that would just be and the great. candles and the candles, of course. Sure, of course. So the blog is um, thecastlerun.com. That's my heart place. That's that's my main site. And you can find the candles on there under the shop. You can also just put corememorycandles.com into your browser and you'll get to those. Um, I'm on Instagram as the Castle Runner. Um, and you can find me on Facebook under my personal account and under the Castle Run page and the Castle Run community. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us again. News this week, but first we're going to take a very quick break. If you're thinking of booking a trip to a Disney destination, you have to contact Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. My husband and I recently celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary and wanted to go on a trip just the two of us. Jackie suggested Disneyland, knowing we'd never been and I had been dreaming of going. I am so thankful for her suggestion, as it was the most magical way to celebrate. Jackie got us a fantastic deal, but still constantly check for discounts to make sure we are guaranteed the lowest price. Having recently visited Disneyland, she was a great source for helpful information and had suggestions for everything, including meals, Max Pass, even places to visit in Los Angeles on our non-park day. Upon arrival at our hotel, we experienced the easiest check-in because Jackie had taken care of everything. Throughout our trip, Jackie was in constant contact, making sure we had everything we needed and answering any questions we had. Our vacation was perfect. All thanks to Jackie Zalezi from Magical Vacation Planner. So you can contact me on any of our social media outlets or shoot me an email at j.zalezi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com. News this week. This one kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. Until further notice, Shanghai Disneyland is closed because of this outbreak of the coronavirus in China. I mean, I don't think they had any other choice, though. I think they have to protect their cast members. They have to protect their park guests. But that dropped just the other day. But it makes so much sense. I mean, so many people are in and out of these parks every day. It would just be a hotbed to spread this virus even further. Yeah, it's the smartest course of action because we always make the joke about amusement park crud and yeah. coming back and, you know, catching maybe a little touch of the cold or, you know, sometimes even worse. I got the flu when we came back on our last trip, um, you know, and that's certainly not to say that they don't take care of the parks of course they're clean but it's like you know you're in and out of the rides all day it's it's the handles the you know especially on like coasters and stuff if you're gripping the oh my god bar the exchange of money and you know any of the restaurants like you can't help it you're touching everything so and it's airplanes it's airport like it's everything you travel to a place like that whether domestic or overseas any place you go like that it's just the sheer number of people makes it a breeding ground for any sort of bacteria. Exactly. I think it's just alarming for people because Disney never really closes unless it's an emergency. Right. Like in recent history, they've only ever closed Walt Disney World because of really bad hurricanes um, and 9-11. And those were really the only two instances where they closed. So to not have a definitive end date, I think that's kind of what 
is setting people off. But it makes sense because until they can figure out how to control this virus or even how it's spreading, they can't, you know, they can't crack down on it. Yeah, you can't just keep exposing people to this. Well, on a lighter note, we have some Disney Plus news this week. Pixar announced that they are bringing a series of shorts to Disney Plus. The series is titled Short Circuit. I don't really understand how they're able to get away with using the title Short Circuit, considering it is already a film franchise, albeit a dormant film franchise. But for those who are subscribers to Disney+, Plus, that's exciting news. Yeah, by the time this episode drops, it's going to be out already. It came out on uh, Friday the 24th. Um, so it's a series of experimental shorts, and the titles include The Race, uh, Downtown, Fetch, Drop, Exchange Student, Puddles, Elephant in the Room, and Hair Jitsu. Um, I love me a good Pixar short, so bring it on. Give me more. And they found a home in the Disney parks in recent history, actually at Epcot Center, where the uh, site formerly known as Captain EO and then Honey, I Shrunk the Audience and then Captain EO again has become the home for the Pixar Film Festival. And for a lot of people, too, I'm sure I know we own them and I'm sure a lot of people own them, the uh, Pixar shorts on Blu-ray and DVD. Now, I wonder if that'll be the end of those releases if they're just going to streamline everything now to Disney+. Plus. I mean, I can't imagine that they still wouldn't tag them on before a feature film. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, I love seeing a Pixar short leading into a feature. So I'm just happy that we get more of that. And I think that's a smart way to utilize Disney+, Plus is to give you more of something that, you know, you want to see in in the cinema or... For, at the parks. Right. Although I would kind of rather have Captain EO back. but I mean, and wouldn't we all? Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much again to Lisa Denoto from The Castle Run for joining us this week and sharing her opinions of the live-action remake of The Lion King. You can find her uh, on Facebook at The Castle Run, on Instagram at The Castle Runner. And don't forget, we did a recent review of the live-action remake of Aladdin, and we still have our contest going on right now to win a Blu-ray DVD digital combo pack of the original animated classic. All you have to do, if you want to enter to win that contest, is to share that episode on social media, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, if you do that by... Monday, February 3rd at 11.59 p.m. You will be automatically entered to win that prize, and we will announce the winner on our show that drops on Tuesday, February the 4th. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to Monoreal Radio on your podcast platform of choice. And you know what? Other than the uh, Aladdin episode, if you have friends or family that are into The Lion King, love discussing The Lion King, please feel free to share this episode with them on your social media as well. Let them know that you are listening. Thank you so much again. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.